Let's pray. We'll pray for Pastor Tim, and uh, we'll get into the message. God in heaven, thank you again. This has been an amazing 10 days. Uh, we are um, we are experiencing revival, God, because of your word, because we recognize that, again, we are coming to the end of time. So much prophecy has been fulfilled. That's the only way we could know uh, all of these things in Daniel and in Revelation and in Matthew because it's behind us, which means that there are very few prophecies left to fulfill. That means we're at the end of time. And so we thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, living in this sinful world. Sometimes we get distracted and confused and all these other things, but we've had this time to refocus on the word, on the Savior, on the gospel, on on truth. And God, we praise you and thank you for um, calling us here uh, to hear these things. But we know, God, that when this meeting ends, when Pastor Tim leaves, that's not the end. This is only the beginning of revival. This is only the beginning of of studying deeper Bible prophecy and your, your precious truths. So please continue to guide us and lead us with your Holy Spirit, the great teacher, your Holy Spirit. And we ask and pray a special prayer for Pastor Tim as he will be leaving us tomorrow morning. We ask your anointing, your continuing anointing upon his ministry. Please guide him as he continues to study and to teach and preach and help others understand uh, Daniel and and your word. We ask, God, that you would guide and lead him uh, in a very special way as your messenger in these last days to um, help others be ready as well and experience revival. Uh, Please give him traveling mercies as he goes. We ask and pray. Uh, Keep him safe. And uh, we know that we'll all be reunited uh, with each other when Jesus returns. If we are faithful to him, we keep our eyes and our faith upon Christ. We are all secure uh, in our Savior. So we thank you, God, for these precious truths. Please guide us tonight with your Holy Spirit. Again, we ask that you teach us afresh and anew from your word. Guide Pastor Tim as he speaks tonight, God. And again, we ask that you'd show us Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Millennium and the new earth. This is what I really want to Not just as a topic, I want to experience this one (laughs) in reality. So as the pastor was just saying, you have these things that are happening now. This third conflict has already begun, followed by the greatest evangelistic opportunity of all time. Michael Jesus stands up, it's the end of a judgment, and God troubles those who are troubling his people, is the way 2 Thessalonians says it. And then Jesus delivers his people. We've gotten that far. Now we're going to be looking at what happens after that. And this is our fourth presentation in a row on these three verses. There's a lot in them. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. 
And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. We've gotten that far already, haven't we? Now we're picking up some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. How do you like to shine for Jesus forever and ever? Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me too. Yeah. So we had the time of trouble like there never was, which is the same as the plagues of Revelation. Jesus delivers his people and there's a resurrection, but there are two resurrections. Daniel mentions them. Jesus mentions them in the Gospels. Revelation gives us the most detail. Revelation chapter 20 talks about it. And it says there is a thousand years between them, which is called the millennium. Now you can look up millennium in the concordance. You're not finding it. People talk about it all the time, but it's not in the concordance. However, if you look up thousand and years, you're going to find where it talks about a thousand years. And a thousand years, well, millennium just means thousand years. That's all it is. All right. So it's not technically in the Bible, but the thousand years is. Just the name millennium's not. But that's what most people use as a reference for this time period. The millennium begins with the second coming of Jesus and God's people taken to heaven and the first resurrection. Revelation 20, 4 through 6. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that thought. All right. Then I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. We're going to find out anybody that comes up in the second resurrection faces the second death. This is why I've said you don't want to sleep in on this one. You want to wake up the first time around. All right. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priest of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. First Thessalonians tells us about this resurrection. It happens when Jesus comes. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he gathers resurrects the dead, brings them up into the clouds. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And it's a huge comfort to me, I know. John five twenty-eight and 29. Jesus talked about these two resurrections. He said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Again, Daniel's got it. Jesus talks about it in the Gospel of John, and John talks about it in the Revelation. When Jesus shows up, the lost hide. They are not pleased to see him. 
Then the sky recedes as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? They go diving for cover. If you need rescue, are you likely to hide from a government helicopter? If you really need rescue and you know you're going to die without rescue, I know I've been out there waiting to flag one down before when I needed it. The weather never got good enough for them to send a chopper out. (laughs) They had to get there on the ground. Took a lot longer that way. (laughs) But suppose... You're a criminal. Are you going to want to see a government helicopter? Or would you be trying to hide in a hole? Did you just catch the difference? When Jesus comes in, in the sky, coming with his angels and everything, with all this glory, brighter than a searchlight on a helicopter, (laughs) Satan's side is diving into the holes. God's side is going to be running out and going, over here, get me out of here. (laughs) The saved are glad. I wasn't just making that up. (laughs) That's what we're going to be doing. All right. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Yeah, that's good news. When Jesus comes swooping in to get his people. Choices are made. By the time the plagues begin, those choices are made. Nobody's going to be making up their minds when Jesus comes. Because when Michael Jesus stood up, everybody's decision was final. He said, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Again, it's according to the works of Jesus if we've asked him to cover our sins with his righteousness. That's why it's such good news. Revelation tells us that at the beginning of the millennium, the wicked are slain. It's called the first death and the fowl's feast. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Then I saw an angel stand in the sun and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains. That's all those people that were hiding, isn't it, in the holes, right? Calling for the rocks and mountains to fall on them. Well, they did. And the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. You know, I watched a harvest 
of hay across the road from where I'm staying. So they cut the hay and they're going to let it dry, right? And that day or two while it's drying, what's all over that field? Vultures eating the critters that got killed when they were cutting, right? When Jesus comes in and gathers his harvest, the vultures follow right after the cutting. (laughs) All right? Now, it said that the beast and the false prophet were thrown in the lake of fire. I think I'm going to talk about that later, but notice first, the wicked were slain. That's the first death experience. And that's the fowl's feast. In other words, God's people, yep, they're rejoicing, they get rescued, they get taken to heaven, but the rest of them are dead. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says, and to give you her troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, He sends a time of trouble to stop them from getting his people. Then when he shows up in his glory, it's destructive to them. There are four groups of people. The righteous dead, those that are trusting Jesus, they're resurrected, go up in the clouds. Those that are trusting Jesus, righteous living, they go up in the clouds and meet together with Jesus. The wicked living, they die when Jesus comes in to rescue his people, the wicked dead, they're just going to stay dead for now. All right? It's like it was in the days of Noah. You're on God's side, you're alive. You're on Satan's side, you're dead. It's like it was in the days of Lot. You're on God's side, you're alive. Satan's side, you're dead. Those are the illustrations that Jesus used. And a lake of fire for the beast and the false prophet. We already read that. It's interesting The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire at the beginning of the thousand years, but the people are not. They're just killed by the glory of Jesus. We're going to find out that anything that's thrown in the lake of fire never comes out of it. All right? It is interesting at the end of the thousand years, these people are going to come back. But the beast and the false prophet do not. That is an interesting point. Some people say the beast and the false prophet are people. Cannot be. Because all people die the first death, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. If they were people, they would come back at the end of the thousand years. But systems don't come back. The beast and the false prophet papal system, the United States Protestantism, these governmental religious groups, when it comes back at the end, it's just Satan and his followers and Jesus and his followers. There's no other organizations that show up. So this is an interesting point that they are not people. They are powers or systems. Second Thessalonians talking about the man of sin and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Same idea as the beast thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so that's what happens at the beginning of it. What about during the thousand years? 
Well, the saints live and reign with Christ for a thousand years and judge with him. Remember Revelation 20 verses four and six. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Blessed is holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him 1,000 years. Where are they reigning? That's an interesting question. Some people say on the earth, some people say in heaven. I'm actually going to go along with heaven. Why? Because look what Jesus said. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he takes his people and he takes them to heaven, where they get to be there for a thousand years. Not bad. Pretty good, actually. What are they doing there? First Corinthians 6. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world and that the world will be judged by you? Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Have you noticed that when the U.S. Supreme Court gets a really tough case, they get a group of Christians and let them solve it? Neither have I. Don't worry. It's not happening yet. But God said, eventually, he's going to let you judge the world. Why would that be? Well, have any of you wanted to ask God a why question? (laughs) We have at least one honest person out here. (laughs) Oh, there's another one. Okay, a few of you are starting to come up with it now, nod their heads. Yep, I'll have some questions to ask God. And some people have asked me, Tim, do you think that that's really symbolic time, like it would be like 360-some thousand years? Day for a year kind of thing? No, I don't think so. Here's why. Methuselah lived almost 1,000 years. And God takes the longest life that there was on this planet. And he gives just a little longer. If Methuselah has a thousand years to come up with questions, he's going to give him a thousand years to get answers. Huh. And God opens up the records. God doesn't need the judge. He already judged before Jesus came. Jesus comes and he's got his reward with him, good or bad. He's not coming to make the decision. He's already done it. When he stands up, he's done. What do these people have to judge then? They get to go into the records and find out why people that they love are not there and get their questions answered. If somebody that you loved isn't there, you're going to want to know why. And God's not going to hide it. God's big enough to take your questions. He doesn't have to hide from them. And so you've got a thousand years to ask him. And he goes through all of those answers. Guess who's really on trial? God is. Was he fair? He's made the judgment. Now he lets you review it and see if you agree. Wow. He's pretty sure of himself, don't you think? He has nothing to hide. By the way, do you want people to see all the bad stuff on your record? (laughs) No. 
And if you're trusting Jesus, if you want to, I'm in heaven and I'm trusting Jesus, but you want to see all the bad stuff. You want to get the dirt on me. And you go to, and you open up the record books and you check under my name. Oh man, this is Jesus' record. When you accept Jesus as your savior, you get his record. And if you don't want anybody to see the stuff you've ever done, give it to Jesus and they'll never see it. Isn't that neat? Now again, if you're lost, it's going to be in there that you didn't trust God and what and why that is. And you'll look in there and you'd see that person you love of all the ways God tried to reach them, but they refused over and over and over again. Don't refuse God. Trust Him. And you don't have anything to hide because He's already taken care of it. (laughs) During that thousand years, Satan is bound. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw the angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. That's kind of the bummer. (sighs) He gets out for just a little bit. Not that he escapes on his own. God lets him out. But there's always a reason for what God does. Abuzos, the bottomless pit. The Greek word, as I said, is abuzos. It's interesting that if you go back to Genesis 1 verse 2, in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Bible that was in use when Jesus was on the earth and the disciples were using it, When the earth was without life, it was called the abuzos. Now think for a moment. If God just took all his people to heaven and Satan's people are all dead, the earth would be what? Without human life again. And it's been destroyed with this fire. Elements are melting and all this kind of stuff. Oh, it would be much like the earth before God put life on it. And Satan is bound here. You've got the earth. No, live, no life on it. Nobody to tempt. And for a thousand years, he can walk wherever he wants and it's endless destruction with nothing for him to do. Except think about what's coming next, which is not good for him. Jeremiah said it this way, And the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth unto the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered nor buried. They shall be dung upon the ground. If there was any living person, they would be lamenting all the death around them. If I was alive on earth and I was around all these dead bodies, I'd either try and go somewhere where they weren't or I'd try and get rid of some of them in a little area where I was at. Because dead bodies is not going to be a lot of fun with a big pile of them around. Desolate cities. Why is Satan stuck here with all this? God talking about him. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. 
And God said, okay, Satan, you think you're as good as me? You think you have the same powers as I have? You think you can do it better? Okay, Satan, I'm going to give you a whole thousand years to prove it. I started with nothing. I'll even give you dead bodies. But Satan is not a creator. He's a murderer. He's not a life giver. He's a life taker. And he cannot make life. Only God can do that. And for a thousand years, he gets to look at the destruction he's caused and think about what's coming. I had a friend that used to tell me, when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. And that's all he has to think about because his future does not end well in Revelation. Yours can. But he's already gone past his being willing to turn around. Then we have this short season. Revelation 20, verses 3 and 7. That he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Oops! He's going to get to deceive somebody at the end of the thousand years, isn't he? But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. So for a short time, he's going to have a bunch of people. Remember, at the end of the thousand years, there's going to be a resurrection. And so God resurrects all Satan's followers. He now has somebody to stir up for rebellion. Not only that, but the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven with all God's people that trusted him. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And that city is supposedly, based on the dimensions, larger than the state of Montana on the smaller version. And it's just as tall as it is far across. That's a massive city. When you start thinking of all the layers you can put into a couple hundred miles. Tall. (laughs) Um, So, if you just put like a floor in every mile, it would be a city that would be like 250 times the size of Montana on the smaller scale. That's like larger than North America. (laughs) God's got enough room in this flying city for you folks. He does. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like per se. I know the Bible gives a little description, but then it adds this caveat. I has not seen nor ear heard. It's beyond your ability to understand. But man, I intend to fly in this thing. I mean, I like planes, especially big ones. Well, I like really big planes and short takeoff and landing planes. (laughs) Uh, So, it's going to be kind of neat. There's that second resurrection, Daniel 12.2. And everyone who is found written in the book will be 
saved, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. What do they do when he gathers them together and deceives them and tempts them? Remember what they did back here just before he showed up? They gathered together to fight against God. Do you know what they're going to do? Now that he's got everybody that ever lived that refused to follow God, not just those that were alive at the end, he's got them all. He's going to now say, hey, there's more of us than there are of them. Is that true? Yes. And he's going to go on by saying, there's more of us. We can take the city. That's when it no longer is true. They attempt to take the new Jerusalem. With Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This is at the end of the thousand years. What Satan does, he's got all these people. How long is the short season? I don't know. Does he have time to build weaponry? I don't know. Or do they just attack in mass? Time will tell. But he has a short time. He rallies all these people and they go after attacking that city. But fire comes from God out of heaven. And it just sweeps across the earth. It's called the lake of fire. If you were standing on the New Jerusalem city walls and all of a sudden, as far as you could see, the wicked had been out there attacking the city. And all of a sudden, if they're all in a lake of fire, as far as you could see, well, it would look like a lake of fire from the walls, wouldn't it? Everything out there is a flame. Some people say, well, it said Gog and Magog. That sounds like Ezekiel 38 to 48. Yeah, it does. It's interesting. Remember when we looked at Israel, we found out that some of these promises were conditional to the children of Israel. If they were obedient, they would get it. If they were disobedient, they wouldn't. Well, they weren't obedient. They didn't build the temple they were supposed to build. Ezekiel gave them the plan. They didn't follow it. They built a smaller one. And they weren't faithful either. If they would have been faithful, the enemies of God, Gog and Magog, would have attacked them and God would have delivered them. But they didn't get it. But remember, everything gets bigger and better for God's Israel of faith. At the end of time, it's not old Jerusalem that's under attack. It's new Jerusalem with all God's people in it and all God's enemies as what would have happened in Jeremiah is now applied in a global way at the end of the thousand years. Bigger and better. Now, I know that because in Ezekiel 43.10, it says, Son of man, write down the plans of this temple so that his people, Israel, would be ashamed of their iniquities. How would the plans of a temple make you ashamed of your iniquities? Because they didn't do what it said when they looked at the plans. 
It was always a reminder that they didn't really obey. And if you don't obey, you don't get the blessings that came along with it. But God's people at the end are obedient. And wow, does it ever get fulfilled at the end of the thousand years? This fire is the second death. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's no mention of the beast or the false prophet. But all who followed Satan are resurrected. They prove that they don't want to change. And they're destroyed in the lake of fire. And then you get a new heavens and a new earth. Now I saw a new heavens and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Okay, you get a new heavens and a new earth. This is good. It's going to be spectacular. Uh, Better than anything we've got on this planet now because everything we see, even the most beautiful, is tainted with sin and death and suffering. But I do have a question. Where did the fire go? Because in Revelation, the wicked surround the city. They're destroyed by fire, or they're in a lake of fire. And then, you have a new heavens and a new earth. Where'd the fire go? Everybody says that the fire never goes out, but you got a new heaven and a new earth. What happened? Let's take a look at some evidence. Second Peter 2.9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Uh, Did you just catch something? The wicked aren't being judged in hellfire right now. They're reserved for their punishment at the end. Remember, Jesus, when he comes, he rewards all his people at the same time with the resurrection and the gift of eternal life. Gives them immortality. The lost all get resurrected at the same time. And they get the same penalty. At the same time. The same lake of fire. Matthew says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. When does the fire happen? At the end of the age. Not when they die. Ezekiel 28, 12 and 19. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Well, the king may have thought he was that, but it's really talking about Satan, who really thought he was something special. But it's using a metaphor as the king of Tyre for Satan. How do I know that? I've read the whole verse before. Let's keep going. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Let's see, who was in Eden? God, Adam, Eve. Anybody else? Satan. Satan. Keep reading. You were the anointed cherub who covers. That's not God, that's not Adam, that's not Eve. That is Satan. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. That's the heavenly city with the golden streets and stuff up there. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. He was perfect, but he corrupted himself with pride. 
by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Did you catch that? Satan himself is reduced to ashes and will be no more. Huh. And that fire was created for him. And all who follow him get the same results. So the fire does its job, burns it up, and gone. Even Satan is gone. It's what the Bible says. Somebody says, well, yeah, that immortal, they have immortal souls, right? But no, the, it's not in the Bible. The Bible says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sinned shall die. Did Satan sin? Yeah. Did his followers sin? Yeah. So the soul that sins shall die. It's called the second death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You've heard that verse before, right? Did you just notice what the comparison is? Everlasting life for God's people. What about the lost? It didn't say tortured through millions of years, did it? It said perish. That's death. Second death. Huh. This is something really beautiful about God, friends. If you haven't figured it out, I'm going to get there really soon. Malachi says it this way. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall arise in your with healing in his wings, he comes in, Jesus, and resurrects us and gives us the corruptible puts on incorruption, the mortal puts on immortality. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Do you know what ashes are good for? Fertilizer. And God uses it to recreate the world. And when he recreates it, you walk out there in what used to be ashes, and it's an all-new life now. I had a 10-acre property one time. It was up in Arkansas. Actually, some of you would know the people who built it. Wes Nash built a house on this property, and he invested... Well, the road was costing more into it than he'd expected, and he needed to sell it. I bought it from him which gave him enough money to buy the next property and build a house next door, and he was my neighbor. Great neighbor. (laughs) But uh, anyway, when I bought that place, it had been used as a feedlot for a dairy farm for a long time. And there were dead trees laying all over, and there was other stuff here, there, and everywhere. You know what it's like in the back part where they just feed cows in the wintertime. 
And so I had a new house, but the place was a mess. And I borrowed this big four-wheel drive tractor and a box blade and a front-end loader. And for days, I kept some three or four fires burning out there. Just kept shoving stuff together, picking stuff up and leveling it out. And then I took the ashes, with, drive through the pile of ashes at the fire with the front-end loader, scoop a load, drop my box blade. And then I just spread it all over the place, spread it out, raked it out, planted seed on it, and it just grew up nice and green. God takes the ashes and uses them for fertilizer. And he makes a new heavens and a new earth out of it. And his people go out in it. Revelation 21, it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Friends, would that be true if there was one person suffering in hellfire? Nope. So you kind of have a choice here. You can accept that people are suffering through endless ages in hellfire, or you can believe the Bible means what it says it does. There comes a point when not one person is suffering anymore. I like what that says about God. God is love and he's fair. Would it be really loving and fair to torture somebody for millions of years if they just messed up for a few years on this earth? Let's put it this way. Suppose Cain never asked forgiveness for killing his brother. And many years later, thousands of years later, suppose I got mad at my brother and killed him and never asked for forgiveness. If what we've been told so often is true, we go straight to heaven or hell when we die. And Cain would go to hell if he didn't ask forgiveness and I'd go to hell, but would it be fair that he was there for thousands of years more for the same crime? Now, I don't know about you, but there are times I probably wanted to kill my brother. You see, I'm the youngest of five boys. I have four older brothers. I am expert at knowing how to get beat up. I could do it without even trying. My closest brother was five and a half years older than me. There was never a fair fight. My brother used to come into the room at night. He was an American Legion baseball catcher. He had an arm. And he'd come in and he'd give me his pennies. He would throw them as hard as he could at my bed as he came in the door. And I was always ready. You do not go to sleep until your brother comes in in this case. And as he comes in the door, I hold up my blanket with as few points of contact as possible. I have had pennies stick in the plaster, not sheetrock, plaster wall by my bed. There was one day, he comes running into the living room. He says, hey, Tim, have you ever played 52-card pickup? I'd never heard of the game. So I said, no. He grabbed a deck of cards, threw it across the living room and said, pick them up. I told you I know how to get beat up, right? I looked at him and said, no. He grabbed me by the back of the neck, jammed my face into some cards on the living room floor and said, pick them up. Can you guess mom and dad weren't home? (laughs) 
Sanity gains control for a moment, and I started picking up some cards. My brother left the room. I dropped the cards and went back to my chair and started reading my book. I hear my brother running into the living room. I'm sitting right by the door of the living room. I'm in seventh grade at this point. I have learned how to play tackle football. As he runs into the living room, I roll over the side of the chair and I grab both legs and pull them together. Shoestring tackle. He's bouncing across the floor on his face. Mom and dad still weren't home. It did not take my brother long to get up. But by the time he did, I was no longer in the house. (laughs) Not to come home till after mom and dad get home. There was a day I was getting out of the shower when mom and dad weren't home. Luckily, I got my underwear on before he threw me outside. We lived out in the country, but it was snowing. (laughs) So as I said, there were times, believe it or not, we're really close to each other now. We like each other really well. (laughs) But if I'd have killed my brother for what I thought at the time would have been just causes... (laughs) Um, would it be fair that Cain got thousands of years extra for the same crime? Huh. But God is love and he's fair. All who reject God get the same punishment at the same time. And note, God only gives immortality at the first resurrection, never at the second never once mentioned. No immortality. It would be the greatest curse the lost could ever have. We got some more verses on this. Where did this come in? Well, as the Catholic Church was taking power in 188 AD, Athenagoras and Tertullian bring it into the Christianity. It's not in the New Testament. Somebody says, well, what about forever? Because the Bible talks about there's smoke going up forever and ever kind of things. Well, there are 56 times in the Bible where forever is used to talk about something that's already ended. Hmm? The Hebrew for word forever is not the same sense that we're used to. Let me use this illustration. If there is a servant and you're a Hebrew servant, a slave, on the year of Jubilee, you get to go free, Right? Really good news. But if you don't want to go free for some reason, there's a way that you can remain a slave. Here it is. You tell your master, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So I have to go to the judges or the master and say, I don't want to go free. And the master takes me to his house, takes my earlobe, and jams an ear, I mean an awl, through my ear into the doorpost. I am now attached to my master's house for life. Can't do much work. They take the all out, but this is symbolic now, right? He's now attached to the master's house forever. Meaning what? Until he dies. O king, live forever. How many of those guys are still around? None of them. But it meant may you have a long reign until you die. 
And when it talks about their smoke ascends forever and ever, I want you to notice that's the second death. It, the double forever is always attached on the second death. And it doesn't say their punishing is forever and ever. The smoke, it's punishment that has eternal consequences. It's not ongoing eternal punishing. Check the words carefully. Somebody says, well, what about Lazarus? The story of Lazarus. Okay, let's take a look at it. It's actually Luke 16, 19 to 31. Now, parables are a story, but not every aspect of them is always um, literal. Let me illustrate it. In the Old Testament, there's a parable uh, of how nasty people end up being kings. Still somewhat true sometimes for political leaders. And the parable was the, the, the plants, the trees get together to see who would be king. And they say, well, maybe the apple tree would be king. And he says, nope, I'm too busy making apples. Oh, what about the fig tree? No, I'm too busy making figs. The grapevine, no, I'm too busy making gra- grapes. And the briar plant says, I'll do it. I'm not busy doing anything good. I just make people miserable. And so the briar plant becomes king and makes everybody miserable. Ever feel like the good people are too busy doing good stuff and the people wanting to stir up trouble end up becoming the political leaders? Sometimes it seems that way, doesn't it? But do you think the trees ever got together and had that discussion? No. Now let's take a look at this parable and see if the same kind of things are there. So I'm going to come out here for a moment. And uh, I'm going to use you two guys. Okay. All right? And would you like to be a rich man? Yeah, really. You get to be the day. <laughs> All right? You get to be a poor man. You get to be Lazarus. The shoe fits. <laughs> <laughs> So Jesus tells a parable and he says that the rich man and Lazarus die and go to Abraham's bosom. All right? Now, the, in this case, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes to Guiana. By the way, I'm going to wait for that. And so, the priest and the rulers at this moment would have been saying, Jesus, you've got it backwards. Because this was their parable. They told the parable, but they told it the other way around. Because they believed that if you were rich, you were blessed of God. And if you were poor, you were cursed of God. And so they had a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man goes to Abraham's bosom and the poor man goes to Gehenna. Jesus takes their parable and he flips it on them. And they're going, what? And so the rich man is over here in the fire and he's over in Abraham's bosom. I got a quick question. Is there enough room in Abraham's lap for everybody? So this might not be literal, folks. All right? 
Here, here comes another question. You are in the hot spot, Gehenna. That's actually where they threw poor people in trash and they're just always in a fire smoldering outside there, just always smoking. And... All right? You get thrown in a hot spot that's smoldering fire and you say, hey, Abraham, uh, could you send Lazarus over to me and give me a drip of water to quench my thirst? So if Lazarus could get all the way over to you with a drip of water and you're in a fire, would one drip of water quench your thirst? When you're cutting hay, would a drip of water make you not be thirsty? No. Even cutting hay, that wouldn't work, he's thinking. (laughs) And so he says, but then Abraham says, there is a great gulf between us. He can't do it anyway. Have you thought of what heaven would be like if you could hear your loved ones screaming in hell and asking for water? If this is literal, we've got some challenges here. All right? Then, a rich man says, Abraham, would you send Lazarus back to my brothers and tell them not to follow my example? And what does Jesus say? Even if somebody was raised from the dead, they wouldn't believe if they won't follow Moses and the prophets. Who was it that came back to life? It wasn't the Lazarus that he was talking about. Who was the real one that would come back to life to be the testimony? Jesus himself. And when Jesus came back, they still wouldn't believe. So what's the punchline of the story? You have Jesus saying, hey, you follow the Bible. You follow his word now. There is no second chance. But if you run that whole thing as literal as how it really is, it doesn't make sense. And then you realize Jesus took their goofy parable and flipped it on them. And the punchline is, you're going to be surprised who's in heaven. And you make your decisions now based on the Bible. Another one. What about unquenchable fire? Jeremiah 17. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. Unquenchable fire already destroyed Jerusalem. I have been in Jerusalem. I could not find one palace or gate that was still burning. Remember what it said about the fire? Even Satan, he's reduced to ashes and he is no more. Jerusalem was burned by the Babylonians. It was destroyed. It's no more. They rebuilt it, but the old one's gone. By the way, I had a church that was burned by an arsonist. The fire department couldn't put the fire out. It was destroyed. Does that mean it's still on fire? No, it burned it to ashes and it went out. It left a pile of twisted steel and broken concrete and a big pile of ashes. That's what we had when it was done. Jude 1.7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of eternal fire, but let's read this one as well. 
and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them example to those who would afterward live ungodly. So Sodom and Gomorrah are eternal fire, but it reduced them to ashes. But remember what it said about Satan, and he will be no more. The results are eternal. The fire burns them up, they're ashes, they're gone. Yeah, a real hell, just a hotter one than some people believe. I was at a businessman's prayer breakfast in Hagerstown, Maryland. This is the city where my church was burned to the ground. Our church was fairly well known after that fire, okay? <laughs> and uh, I was sitting there, and there's an empty seat beside me. A guy walks up, and he says, hey, is that seat taken? I said, no, please have a seat. And the guy sits down beside me. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. I said, what church? I said, in the Seventh-day Adventist church across from the business college. He said, oh, you're that pastor that doesn't believe in hell. Interesting way to start a conversation. And uh, I looked at him and smiled and said, oh, sir, I believe in a real hell, just a hotter one than you do. He looked at me and said, what? A hotter one than I do? I said, yeah, you have a hellfire that God's not able to burn it hot enough to get rid of sin and sinners. And either he's, your God's not powerful enough to get rid of sinner, sin and sinners or somehow he enjoys torturing them. My God is powerful enough to have a hot enough fire to burn up sinners and he puts them out of their misery like a good vet. So they are no more. My God loves and he's strong enough to do the job. I believe in a real hell, just a hotter one. Then we had our conversation. <laughs> All right, why would God do all this? I mean, think about it. The wicked gather to attack him and God's followers. Jesus rescues his followers and the wicked die. That makes sense, right? He takes his people up in the heaven, gives them a chance for a thousand years to ask questions. That makes sense. But why let all this stuff happen? Here's why. While you're going through all those records up in heaven, you just might come to this question. God, if my loved one could just see this new Jerusalem, surely they would surrender. They would quit fighting you. God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take everybody down. I'm going to resurrect all those lost people. And we're going to see if they've really made their final decision or not. And so... You go down there, you see that resurrection happen, and all of a sudden there are all these people gathered around to attack the city that you're in. And you can see that loved one that you cared about, that you said, if only they could see this city and everything that we have, they would surrender. And you look out there, and they look up you on the wall, and they yell at you, we will kill you to take your spot. And the attack begins. And God reveals his glory once again. You see, what did he tell Moses? If you were to see my glory, it would destroy you. And God simply lets his glory. He is himself. And his glory is either a healing power for those who trust in him, or it is a destroying fire to those who do not trust in him. And he's just himself. 
It's not so much that he's killing people. Their choice is what's killed them. They chose. And his glory, the God of love, and it puts them out of their misery. Do you think we're going to look at God and say, why did you do that? No. But if he would have cut it off too soon, we would have. I had a guy one time ask me, why didn't God just take Satan for a long walk when he first had some bad thoughts? I said, anybody want to go on long walks with God after that? People or angels go on long walks with God, they're never seen from or heard from again. Suppose you're at work and the boss comes in and points at somebody working beside you and says, hey, come with me. They go with the boss. They are never seen or heard from again. Nobody ever hears from them again. Maybe someday the boss walks in, points at somebody else, come for a walk with me, and they're not so sure they want to go. But they go for a walk, and they're never seen or heard from again. And one day he points at you and says, hey, let's go for a walk. I mean, I'm really busy. I've got a lot of work to do. Do you want to go spend time with the boss? No, because you're afraid of him. You don't love him. If God would have taken Satan out too early, we wouldn't be in a loving relationship with him. But he lets it go through all this cycle because if he cuts it off too quick before we really know what sin is like and what he's like, we won't really trust him. But when he finally does it, we're not going to say, God, why did you do it? The Bible calls it his strange act because he loves them more than we do. There will be tears in his eyes. It doesn't say he wipes away all tears till after that fire. It's not during the thousand years. People always talk about in heaven there are no tears. It's actually on the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the thousand years that that's true. But we're going to say, God, thank you for saving me one last time. I will serve you forever. I'm so sorry you had to do that. And then God's going to say, let there be grass. And you get the new heavens and the new earth. I want to be standing there when he makes an elephant. Out of nothing. That's what wipes away the tears, his awesome creative power. And he's going to create this new heavens and a new earth like a massive garden in Eden and you're going to get to go out, the Bible says, and you're going to get to build houses and plant vineyards. Have you ever built a house? There's a couple of things about building houses I don't like. One is I'm always in a hurry. I only have so much time and I only have so much money. Uh, Some of you understand that one. But in this one, I'm going to have Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years in new heavens and new earth. It's never going to end. I can work on a plan for a couple thousand years and change my mind. It's no big hurry. (laughs) And there's no budget. I can do whatever. And I can plant things. I love planting things. I'm a gardener. And every time I get a garden about the way I like it, I end up moving. I, a week ago, 
I was up in northwest Arkansas and I went and looked at a place that used to be my place. Second time I've gone out to look at it since I uh, sold it. I had blueberries and raspberries and strawberries and blackberries and, and I had all kinds of stuff and a nice big garden and all this stuff. And I decided I wanted cherry trees. So I bought three cherry trees and I planted three cherry trees out there. And the next spring came around. I didn't know it was going to be my last spring there. But spring came around and early summer I had cherries. But I don't know if you know this, but birds know just when to pick them because they know they can get them a couple hours before you do. (laughs) And sure enough, it happened. And I went out there and I found two cherries. They both had peck marks in them. I picked the two cherries and I came in the house. I said, Karen, you take your pick of the cherries. I'll eat the other one. She looked at those cherries with pecks in them. She says, no, thank you. So I ate both of them. I mean, I dug those holes. I planted those cherry trees. I've been nursing them along. I'm eating those two cherries. (laughs) Then I moved. A couple of years later, I came back. Went out there and knocked at the door and said, hey, do you mind if I look around? Yeah, it's fine. Go ahead. They recognized me. And I said, hey, I noticed the cherry trees have cherries on them. Do you mind if I eat a few? Sure. Go ahead. Eat as many as you want. We don't like cherries. <laughs> the blueberries were gone. The raspberries were gone. The blackberries were gone. The vegetable garden was gone. I mean, the land's still there, but it's all lawn. All that stuff I worked so hard for was gone. I went back out there this last week. The cherry trees are gone. <laughs> Still a beautiful place, but all that neat stuff is gone. In the new heavens and new earth, I'm going to get to plant my stuff and I'm going to get to keep it an unending time. I'm going to get to build a home just the way I want to. I'm going to have relationships with people. And it actually says that from one Sabbath to another, we gather together in the new Jerusalem. We have a city home. Jesus said that he's building us mansions or rooms in the Father's house. So we get to go into the city on the weekend for a big worship service that God leads. You know this is going to be an awesome worship service, right? And then we get to go out and work our farms or whatever, just like Adam and Eve did. Probably get to travel through the universe and share how awesome God is because we've been through it like nobody in the universe has. We know the song of Moses and the Lamb. We know what it's like. It's going to be really special. I was sharing this one day about how God is really a God of love and he doesn't torture people. And you know what? There was a young man right out here in the middle. Partway through, He started to cry and he got up and walked out. After a little while, he came back in. And I was curious what happened. Afterwards, he was in the foyer and I walked up to him and I said, would you be willing to tell me what happened while I was presenting tonight? 
said, I saw the tears. I saw you leave and I saw you come back. He said, yeah. He said, all my life, I've been an active Christian. He's in his 20s. He's actually a praise leader in his church. Great guitarist. And uh, he said, I've always been told God is love. But I was also told that he was going to torture sinners. And he said, I couldn't figure out how that matched. If God is a God of love, how could he torture people? And he just said, I finally decided that I was just above my ability to understand. He said, tonight, I finally realized God really is a God of love. I challenge you, go looking for where does God give immortality. It is only at the first resurrection. Get your concordances out and check it. It is not at the second one. It would be the greatest curse that he could have given to them. He loves them too much to give them immortality because that would mean they would always suffer. But for his saved ones, immortality means they will always have peace and joy. God is love. In Matthew 13, let me close with this. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. He said, a guy prepares the dirt. Hey, what did God make Adam out of? Guess what we are in this parable? We're the dirt. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And so God prepares... This farmer prepares the dirt and he goes and plants, sows seed on it. Some of it falls on a hard path and the birds come in and swoop down and take it away. I mean, you can, churches do all kinds of things that try and share the gospel, but most people, it just kind of bounces off of them and Satan just takes it away, right? Others, it lands on shallow dirt. It's been prepared, but there's a rock right underneath it. You know what happens if it's shallow, right? In the spring when there's water, it sprouts and grows up nice. And, but as soon as it gets hot and a little bit dry, that spot dies first. Somebody that doesn't have deep roots in the God's word. Then there are others that lands where the thorns and weeds. And the thorns and weeds choke out the, uh, the new plant as it grows. That's, you know, your work, your hobbies, your, your sports, whatever that takes away your focus from God. And he says, but some of it lands on good dirt. And it produces 30, 60, or 100 fold. I hope you're good dirt. I hope you're going to take the lessons you've learned as you study God's word and you're going to share them with others. If you find that this material that we've shared with you is useful, grab a bunch of these brochures that they're about to throw away. You can just change the last little bit from live to Islam and friends, you can hand it to friends and they can go watch it online. Use some of the DVDs or books that you've got. Have a small group in your home. Whatever. Share God's word with other people. Don't hold it to yourself. Multiply it and spread it. And then in Matthew 7, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There will be a lot of people who have been claiming to be Christian, but weren't really following God's word. Remember in night one, I said, my goal is to get you following Jesus and his word as the authority for your life. Guess what? That's still my goal. If I'm right or not, on everything I've said, I still want you to follow Jesus and his word as your authority. All right? You have to test it out and find out for yourself. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. So if you build on God's word and on Jesus, the rains will come, the storms will come, but your life will not fall apart because you're founded on the rock, Jesus Christ and his word. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, if you dig into the Bible and you see what it says and you ignore what it says, and does not do them, will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Some people say, hey, if I follow Jesus and I'm going to have storms in my life, then I'm not going to follow Jesus. Well, tough, you're going to have storms anyway. But now you're based on your own beliefs and the beliefs of other people that are constantly shifting and changing. (laughs) Not going to do so well in a storm. And it's going to collapse. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I have no authority of my own. All I have is follow Jesus in the word. But that is the authority. Have you noticed that in Daniel 11, we get up to verse 43 and it's almost all about geopolitical and then it takes a turn to show us what we need to be living like and the Bible truths that have been twisted by the papal system. First, it talks about what it does militarily and controlling people, and then it shows you how it changes God's truth. Those are the kind of things that we need to know for the time of the end. This prophecy is for the time of the end. Study it. Follow what it says, because his word is the authority. You don't want to miss out on this new heaven and new earth for anything on this earth. It's going to be spectacular. I'm going to ask that you pull out your response envelope. Some of you have not been filling them out, but this time I hope you're going to fill it out. It's up to you if you turn it in or not. But I do hope you fill it out. Because I've got a special question in here. All right? The first couple are normal. Yes, no, or question mark. The resurrection of the saved at Christ's return marks the start of the thousand years, while the resurrection of the lost marks the end of the thousand years. That makes sense, yes, no if it doesn't. Number two, God's people will be with him in heaven during the thousand years. During this time, they will have all their questions answered from the heavenly records. Yes, no, or question. Number three, Fire descends from God on the attackers, destroying them and reducing them to ashes. This puts an end to sin and suffering for all time. And then here comes the interesting question. And you're going to say, this is it? 
Yeah, because there's a part B to it. Yes or no? And I sure hope it's a yes for each and every one of you. I will follow Jesus and the teachings of God as revealed in the Bible. I will follow Jesus and the teachings of God as revealed in the Bible. And there's an A, A, B, and a C. A, I will try to change my church fellowship by sharing Bible truth with them. B, I will find a church fellowship that is in harmony with Bible truth. C, I will start a church fellowship that is in harmony with Bible truth. You need... Ah, uh, number four. Right. All right. Let me explain it a little more in detail, okay? A, if you find that you found new Bible truth that is not in your church fellowship, you can have a choice that God may ask you to change the church fellowship you're in to try and change it and share those Bible truths. I will just simply tell you that is the most difficult of all three. All right? But I'm not God. I, I can't tell you what he wants you to do. Number uh, B, I will find a church fellowship that is in harmony with Bible truth. This is why I'm actually a Seventh-day Adventist. It's the only church that won't kick me out for saying this stuff. Um, I can't find anything else that's a closer match to it. Or C, I will start a church fellowship that is in harmony with Bible truth. You see, you've either got to change one, find one, or start one, but you need a fellowship. The Bible says so. That's the only three options I can come up with. Change one, find one, start one. I would encourage you, if you find that what has been shared to be true, to consider which one of these you're going to do. What is God asking you to do? And encourage you to circle one. And again, if you turn it in or not, it's up to you. But I would also suggest that if you do turn it in, that I'm asking the pastor to be praying for you. I will be too. I'm asking the pastor to be praying for you and contact you in a couple of weeks. Why? Especially if you pick A, you're going to need some prayer cover. (laughs) Okay. But I don't know what God's going to ask you to do. I asked this in Kansas one time. And there's this guy that ran an air conditioning business. He said A, B, and C in that order. And this guy was pretty serious. He watched every presentation online before I presented it. He watched the 731, and then he watched the repeat at 545. He did it for all 10 of the presentations. He got all three hits for each one. He was digging for answers. And he said, A, B, and C. He says, I'm already pretty well sure I'm about to get kicked out of the church I'm in. He said, that means I'm going to go looking for one, and if I can't find one, I'm going to start one. This guy's an entrepreneur. I believed him. (laughs) I don't know what's happened with his life. I'm sure he's serious about following God, whatever it is. I will tell you this. You will never find the perfect church. If you find the perfect church, you can't join it you would mess it up because you're not perfect either. (laughs) Neither am I, (laughs) okay? But you have to look for a church that is not 
actively teaching things contrary to God's word. All right? That's what's so important to find. Because if somebody's making excuses for not following something in God's word, they become especially dangerous for you because you might start accepting the excuses. So just A, B, or C. And if you want prayer cover, make sure you put a phone number on there when you turn it in so he can call you and pray with you about it. All right? And then number five, if you'd like to know more about what Adventists believe, yes. And I hope some of you check out. I wouldn't mind if all of you checked out what Adventists believe. By the way, it's not a huge surprise. Uh, We've covered most of it already. The major things that get people riled up, we've covered. They're in the Daniel 11 prophecy. That's why I'm just working through it verse by verse. It's the message for the time of the end. Check it out. So let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity of spending some time with these precious people here in this Mount Pleasant area. Lord, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to continue to lead and guide them. Help them to dig into your word and not follow me or any other pastor, but simply follow you and your word. Lord, guide them in their decisions and their search and their quest to be in a church family that's going to be a healthy fit for them to help them be ready for your return. Lord, I ask that for each and every one of us, that as long as we're trusting completely in you, you give us peace that passes all understanding. But at the same time, if we're drifting away, that you would trouble us, trouble us and leave us uncomfortable until we come back to full surrender to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.